Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you all for coming out on a, on a Saturday afternoon. Um, I, there's no prizes for guessing why there's so much enthusiasm um, to be here today. In fact, uh, I'm sure some of you are aware that this rather big room is full, but we've also got a, a room full next door, so I'd like to welcome the, the folks next door in the in the auditorium where this is uh, live streaming. And we're also streaming live on Facebook, I think. So, um, But as I said, there's no prizes for guessing why such a large and enthusiastic crowd has come out to hear one of the guardians of our world in, in the most meaningful sense, our environment, the habitat of animals, in this rather, in these rather worrying times, I must say. Um, so it's a great honor to welcome back to the Institute Dr. Jane Goodall, uh, Dame Jane Goodall, the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute and UN Messenger of Peace. Um, what I'm going to tell you now is really just a sketch of, of the monumental work that Jane Goodall has done and continues to do. In July 1960, Jane Goodall began her landmark study of chimpanzee behavior in what is now Tanzania. Her work at Gombe Stream would become the foundation of future primatological research and redefine the relationship between humans and animals. In 1977, Dr. Goodall established the Jane Goodall Institute, which continues the Gombe research uh, and is a global leader, she is a global leader, in the effort to protect chimpanzees and their habitats. The institute is widely recognized for innovative community-centered conservation and development programs in Africa. And Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots, the global, uh, it's also well known for Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots, the global environmental and humanitarian youth program. Um, I think, and it's, it's related to that program, I think that she's here for a few days in, in the United Arab Emirates. Dr. Goodall founded Roots and Shoots with a group of Tanzanian students in 1991. Today, Roots and Shoots connects hundreds of thousands of youth in more than 130 countries who take action to make the world a better place for people, animals, and the environment. Dr. Goodall travels an average of 300 days per year, speaking about the threats facing chimpanzees, other environmental crises, and her reasons for hope that humankind will solve the problems it has imposed on the earth. Her honors include, and they simply include, there's a lot, much larger list, the French Légion d'Honneur, Legion of Honor, the Medal of Tanzania, and Japan's prestigious Kyoto Prize. In 2002, Dr. Goodall was appointed to serve as United Nations Messenger of Peace, a role which has been renewed uh, since her first tenure. And in 2003, she was named a Dame of the British Empire. Um, please welcome Dr. Goodall uh, warmly.
this. I'm not here taking her applause. I'm simply uh, want to indicate that before she comes up onto the stage, we she'd like us to watch a, a short video. Um, so let it roll, please. It's been an amazing journey, this life of mine. This planet has filled me with the wonder of all living things, great and small. We cannot ignore this earth that surrounds us, that feeds us, shelters us, replenishes our bodies and our souls, and stretches our imaginations, where animals, plants, air, water, all care for us. We're all interconnected. People, animals, our environment. When nature suffers, we suffer. And when nature flourishes, we all flourish. I do believe in the possibility of a world where we can live in harmony with nature, but only if every one of us does our part to make that world a reality. So that when you look back over your journey, your life, you can truly say, I did make a difference. Well, thank you and good evening everyone. Thank you indeed for coming tonight and uh, hello by voice to those of you who I believe are listening from another room or to live streaming or something like that, one of these wonders of modern technology. I want to start off with my typical greeting because if I don't, there'll always be somebody who says, but Jane, you didn't do the chimpanzee greeting. So this is the sound you would hear if you came with me to Gombe National Park and which simply means this is me, this is Jane. And it's a very important call for the chimpanzees because each individual has his or her own distinctive voice. And chimpanzees, unlike most monkeys, gorillas, and so forth, don't travel around in a stable troop or group. They live in a complex community of about 50 individuals at Gombe, and within that community, which has a territory, the individuals sometimes walk around alone, sometimes small family groups, sometimes two or three family groups together, sometimes a group of males hanging out, and sometimes many of these groups gather together when a new fruit comes into season. And so it's really important, say, uh, a young adolescent wants to make contact with his mother, then that is the call he will give and he'll listen. And if his mother hears him, if she's interested in him, uh, she'll answer. So that's a very important call that we call the pantoot. Having said all that, I want to go back to the beginning. And some of you have heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again anyway. Because as we go through life, there are certain people who help us along the way. We can't do anything by ourselves. We all need support from someone. And there are various people, many people, more than I could possibly mention, 
who've helped me on my journey. I mean, I'm 82 years old, so think of the number of people I've met who've helped me in 82 years. But I want to start off with my mother because the key role that she played when I was young in helping me to do everything that I've done, she supported me right from the beginning. I was born loving animals. I apparently was watching little worms and things from the time I could crawl. And my mother supported this. So when she found I'd taken a whole handful of earthworms to bed with me, instead of getting angry, because of course all the earth was there as well, she just said, Jane, they need to be in the garden or they'll die. And we took them outside. Now, here's another story that I know some of you know, but I'm going to tell it again for a reason. We lived in London, not so many animals there. But when I was four and a half years old, we went for a holiday into the country onto a farm. And I don't know if you can imagine how exciting it was for this little girl, cows, pigs, horses out in the fields, meeting them face to face. I can still remember it. And I was given a job to help collect the hen's eggs. The hens, there were no cruel factory farms in those days. The hens pecked around in the farmyard. And they were supposed to lay their eggs in these little wooden hen houses where they also slept at night. So I would go around the outside of the hen house, open a lid for the nest box, and if there was an egg, put it in my little basket. And apparently, I don't remember, of course, I was four and a half, but I began asking everybody, but, you know, here's the egg. Where does it come out of the hen? Where's the hole big enough? I mean, I remember much later wondering about babies, but this was a chicken and an egg, and nobody told me. So I distinctly remember seeing this hen. She was brown, and she was going up into one of these little hen houses, and thinking she's going to lay an egg and crawling after her, which was a big mistake. And with squawks of fear, she flew out. And so I must have thought, this is now a frightening place. Because what I did was to go into an empty hen house, I think there were about six, and wait. And I waited. And I waited. And I waited, which was fine for me, but my family had no idea where I was. And it began to get dark. And apparently, they were just about to call the police when my mother sees this little girl rushing towards the house. And how easily she could have got angry. How dare you go off without telling us? Don't you dare do it again, which would have killed all the excitement. But she saw my shining eyes and sat down to hear the wonderful story of how a hen lays an egg. I can still close my eyes and see it. And the reason I tell that story is, isn't that the making of a little scientist? The curiosity, asking questions, not getting the answer you want, deciding to find out for yourself, making a mistake, not giving up, and learning patience. It was all there in that four and a half year old little girl. And with a different mother, that curiosity might have been crushed and I might not have done what I went on to do. So my mother played a very important role in my childhood. She realized that if I would 
that I would read more quickly if I was reading about a subject that interested me. So she found books about animals. They came from the library. World War II started when I was a child, and we didn't have very much money at all. My clothes were secondhand, and the books came from the library, but she always chose books about animals. So I was eight years old. Some of you must know Dr. Doolittle, that wonderful English doctor who decided to become a doctor for animals and learned animal language from his parrot. And actually, if you read those books again now, there's an awful lot that's very fascinating. And Hugh Lofting was, was he really had insight into animal behavior. At any rate, I pretended for a long time that I could understand the animals. I told all my friends what the dogs and cats and birds were talking about, and they believed me. Well, then when I was 10 years old, I used to spend a lot of time in a little second-hand bookshop, and I found a little book this size, and it was called Tarzan of the Apes. I took it home, I climbed up my favorite beech tree in the garden, and I read it from cover to cover. And of course, I fell passionately in love with this glorious lord of the jungle. And I was very jealous because he married the wrong Jane. <laughs> At any rate, there I was, 10 years old, and that's when my dream began. I will grow up, go to Africa, live with wild animals and write books about them. I had no, no desire to be a scientist. Anyway, girls weren't scientists back in those days. But then nor did girls get the chance to go off to Africa on adventures like that. So everybody laughed at me, Jane, why don't you dream about something you can achieve and forget this nonsense about Africa? Not my mother. She would say words to this effect. If you really want this thing, you're going to have to work awfully hard. You're going to have to take advantage of opportunity, but most important, don't give up. And that's what I've shared with young people all around the world, particularly in disadvantaged communities, developing nations. And the big reward has been the number of people who've come up to me and said, thank you, Jane, you taught me that because you did it, I can do it too. And you couldn't have a better reward than that. At any rate, I left school. I was good at my subjects. I always came second or third in the exams. And yet there was no money for university and you couldn't get a scholarship unless you were good in a foreign language and I wasn't. But we just had enough money for a secretarial course. And I did that in London, which was terribly boring but turns out to have been very useful. My first job was in a documentary film studio. And that was another amazing coincidence because while I was there, I learned exactly how documentary films are made. And so unlike many other scientists, if a film is being made, and many have now about me and the chimps and so forth, and the, and the director will say, that was perfect. Now can we do it once more? I know why they do that, and I don't get mad, but many other people do. So I was working at this studio in London, and I got this letter, an amazing letter, inviting me to Kenya for a holiday from a school friend. So yes, that was the opportunity. Still no money, went home, 
worked as a waitress. And by the way, next time you are in a, a restaurant and a waitress or a waiter serves you, let me tell you, it's jolly hard work. And I'm always very grateful to waiters and waitresses because I know what they've gone through to make it all nice. At any rate, I kind of enjoyed waitressing. I got to know a whole other group of people. They were all Irish Catholic and I hadn't met any of them before. And I was the only non-professional, so I was resented to start with, but eventually they welcomed me in. And I suppose it was one of my first, really first opportunities to learn about differences between cultures and people and religions and how we're all the same underneath. At any rate, finally I'd saved up enough money. It took about five months, I think. And off I went by boat, because we, we didn't travel about by plane back then. And I don't know if you can imagine how exciting it was, because I left England when it was cold and grey. And we had to go all the way around Africa. Instead of going from London through the Suez Canal and then down to Mombasa, which would have been normal, that silly little war, the British war with Egypt, was going on. And so the boat had to go all the way around Cape Town, which for, for me was wonderful because there was this long sea voyage and watching the sea change from gray and gradually get bluer. And then the first flying fish, a fish that flew and it landed on the deck. And I was able to be the one to put it back in the sea, just like we put the earthworms back into the garden. And then when dolphins appeared around Durban, jumping around the boat, and landing at different exotic ports and smelling new smells and tasting new food. I have to say that when I got off the boat at Cape Town, although it was very beautiful, there was one thing that utterly shocked me. And that was that on almost every seat, on every door, it said whites only, whites only, whites only. And I found this really upsetting. At any rate, I got to Kenya and that was pretty colonialist too, and stayed with my friend. And the very first day driving from, driving, I got off on the train, driving up to their place up in the hills, and there was a giraffe standing there, just not in a national park, just by the road. And we stopped and looking up at those big eyes and the eyelashes, and I thought, I'm really in Africa now. And Actually, there was something quite rare on the road. There was an aardvark, and I didn't realize then how rare it was to see them, so we looked at this strange ant bear. And then the first morning, my friend came running to my room and said, come and look, and outside the front door, there was the paw marks of a big male leopard. So I was in Africa. I was in the Africa of my dreams, and I had a wonderful time staying with my friend then I got a job in Nairobi, and that was when the next important person came into my life, because somebody said to me, Jane, if you're interested in animals, you should meet Louis Leakey. And so I went to the Natural History Museum where he was curator. I just went to talk to him about animals, and he took me all around and he asked me so many questions. I don't remember what they were, but they were about the animals that were being exhibited there. And he took me into the sad places where you open a drawer and there are all these specimens of birds. I mean, 
so many of one species. Surely I thought that's not necessary. But anyhow, I could answer many of his questions because of all the hours I'd spent in the Natural History Museum in London and because of all the books that I'd read. And so I left with a job. I didn't go for a job, but it just turned out, coincidence, maybe, but his secretary was leaving. So my secretarial training came absolutely into you know perfect use. But while I was working there, I didn't do much secretarial. I was just working with him. And then came the next amazing opportunity. He let me go with he, his wife, one other young English girl, and I think there were about six Kenyans, to a place that's now very famous to anyone who knows anything about paleontology, Olduvai Gorge, where some very, very early human remains, prehistoric, a prehistoric man, have since been found. But when I went, only animal fossils had been found, no human remains. In fact, most people thought the leakies were crazy, and they thought that these strange pebbles, the Aldovan pebbles, were human tools, and nobody believed them, but they didn't listen. And they went on year after year, going for three months, and Gillian and I went with them. And that was okay, digging away, looking for fossils, but the exciting part was that after the hard day's work, Gillian and I were allowed to walk out on the plains. And in those days, all the animals were there. Aldabai Gorge is a little, it's the start of the Great Rift Valley. And it's crossing the Serengeti Plains. And in those days, all the animals were there. And there was one evening when a rhino crossed about no further away than the length of this room, and luckily rhinos don't see very well, and the wind was blowing from him to us, and he trotted back and forth and then decided to run in the other direction. And then one evening it was a young male lion, fully grown, probably about two years old, mane beginning to sprout on his shoulders, and he'd never seen anything like me and Julian before. And he followed us. I would say he followed us three times the length of this room, and he was a bit further away than the length of the room, not much. And it was a bit scary, but it was also very exciting. And I truly believe it was that evening around the campfire that Leakey decided that I was the person he'd been looking for to go and learn about chimpanzee behavior. So Lewis Leakey had a reason. He believed, and his, his early belief has been vindicated now, mostly, but what he believed was that there was a common ancestor, common to humans and the other apes, about six to seven million years ago. And so his reasoning was, since he was looking for early, early human remains, like Zinjanthropus and so on, that you can learn a lot from the fossil you find, from the bones you can deduce if the creature walked upright, from the wear on the teeth, you know, the kind of food, and so on. But behavior doesn't fossilize. So he reasoned, if Jane finds behavior that's similar to human and chimp behavior today, possibly that behavior was present in the common ancestor, 
and therefore has been coming with us on our separate evolutionary trails to modern chimpanzee and modern human. That was his reasoning. He eventually got some money. It took a long time. It took about a year, because who on earth was going to give money for this young girl who had never been to university to go and do something that young girls didn't do? But eventually, an American business man said, all right, here's money for six months. We'll see what she can do. Then the British authorities in what was then Tanganyika, sort of the remnants of the crumbling British Empire, they didn't want to take responsibility for this young girl. And they said no, and no, and no. But Lewis never gave up. So in the end, they said, yes, well, she'll have to have a companion. That same amazing mother was the one who volunteered to come for the first four months. And she was amazing because in those early days, the chimpanzees would take one look at me. They're very conservative. They'd never seen a white ape before. And they would run away. And so when I, I was getting really worried because I knew if, the, if I didn't see something exciting before the first money ran out, that would be the end. And I would have let Leaky down and the adventure would have, would have to come to a stop. So there was my mother in the evening to say, but Jane, you found that peak. You've got your binoculars. You're learning more than you think. You're learning about the chimps moving around in little groups or alone or meeting up in excitement. You're learning about some of the calls they make. You're learning about the foods they're eating. You see how they make nests up within the branches of the trees at night. And so she was boosting my morale. And it was really sad that she had to leave just before the breakthrough observation. And that was when I saw a chimpanzee sitting on a termite mound. And I saw a black hand reach out and break off a grass stem. And I saw it pushed down into the termite mound, carefully pulled out, and the termites clinging on, bitten off and chewed up. And I saw him actually break off a leafy twig. And to use that as a tool to fish for termites, he had to strip the leaves modifying that natural object, the beginning of tool making. If we saw that today, it wouldn't be particularly exciting. But back then it was. And the reason it was exciting back then is because it was thought humans and only humans use and make tools. That was what science thought. And we were actually defined as man, man the tool maker. So that when I sent Lewis information, and, and I waited till I'd seen it a few more times because I could hardly believe what I'd seen. And he said, well, then we shall just have to redefine man, redefine tool, or accept chimpanzees as humans. At any rate, it was that observation that enabled Louis Leakey to persuade the National Geographic to come in with support for me after the first six months money ran out. And the Geographic not only said they would provide money, but they sent out a filmmaker and photographer, Hugo van Lauwijk, who became my first husband, and whose films and photographs in those early National Geographic documentaries and magazine articles were really what took chimpanzees and their behavior out into the homes around, first of all, the US and then Europe and finally all around the world. So it was 
a very, very exciting observation. And that chimpanzee who showed me tool using for the first time was the first one also who'd begun to lose his fear of me. And I had named him David Greybeard because he had the beautiful white beard. And it was David Greybeard and his calm acceptance of me that enabled me gradually to get closer and closer to his friends out in the forest. And gradually I came to know them as individuals. David with his calm, gentle disposition, his rather excitable friend Goliath, who I came to understand was the top-ranking or alpha male, the very timid William, Mike, who raised his status by using his intelligence rather than his strength. I got to know the different females, old Flo, that incredible mother with her family, and Ollie and Melissa and Passion. And I came to know how they all had completely different personalities. And gradually I came to know more about their complex social structure, how there's always one male out of between six and 10 adult males usually in a community of 50, something like that. And there's always one who's alpha male. And there's a lot of competition to get to that top status. But there are some individuals who aren't motivated to try and they're just happy to, to just travel around and feed and mate when they get the opportunity. Whereas others expend an enormous amount of energy, not only to get to the top, but to stay there. You can't get to the top and relax, you have to work at it. And the way that most chimpanzees um, get to the top is by developing what we call their charging display or dominance display. And the male will hurtle across the ground with his hair erect and bristling. He'll stamp with his feet. He'll slap with his hands. He'll leap up and sway branches. He'll hurl rocks. And the more frequent and more dramatic his display, the more likely he is to get to the top. I mentioned that Mike used his intelligence. Well, the chimps began coming through my camp because again, it was David Greybeard who found some bananas there. And I asked my cook to leave bananas out while I was up in the hills. And David came more often and eventually his friends began to follow him. And I used kerosene, paraffin, to light my lamp in the evening. And the empty cans were stacked around under the tent. And I think all the males at one time or another just grabbed one of these four-gallon tin cans and incorporated into his charging display. Mike learned to capitalize on that chance experience. He learned to keep three of them ahead of him, hitting and kicking, as he charged towards males who at that time were his superiors. And he managed to get to the top in just four months. And as far as we know, there was no serious physical fighting because there were no chimps with wounds or losing great tufts of hair. And he maintained that position for six years. And Figan, another very intelligent one, he made it to the top by only challenging the larger, more aggressive Humphrey when his brother was nearby, his brother who was his ally. And the two of them together were able to intimidate Humphrey enough that eventually Figan took over. So. This is what, of course, I was learning as the years went by, not all at the beginning. I'm looking back now over what we've learned. And I began learning 
that in chimp society, just as in human society, there are good mothers and bad mothers. And the good mothers are protective, but they're not overprotective. And they're playful and they're affectionate, but the key thing is they are supportive. In other words, they're just like my mother was. And we now know, looking back over the years, that the offspring of the good mothers are more likely to get to a high rank if they're males. That will give them a greater reproductive advantage. And they'll be more successful as mothers. So the nature of the mother is very important in chimp society. There's a long childhood. We have, our children have a long childhood. So too to chimps. For five years, the infant will ride about in the mother's back, sleep with her at night and suckle gradually doing these things less and less until the next baby is born after five or six years. So a long space between, between live births. And it seems that this long childhood is important in relation to social learning, which is probably why we too have a long childhood in our species. Our children have a lot to learn. If you're an insect, you can come out of an egg and you can have a whole complex behavioral system encoded in your genes. You may never need to see another insect. Uh, sometimes, mostly, the female needs to see a male in order to produce eggs. Sometimes that isn't even necessary, the self-fertilization. But at any rate, that's not true for us, and it's not true for chimpanzees, and it's not true for most other creatures. Young ones have to learn. And in chimpanzee society, we know tool using is very important. And in all the different places where chimpanzees have now been studied, it's been observed that they use different objects for different purposes. We've seen the young ones intently watching, then practicing and eventually getting good at it and incorporating it into their behavior. So one definition of culture in humans is behavior passed from one generation to the next through observation, imitation, and practice. So then we can say chimpanzees have primitive culture. I was shocked to find that like us, chimpanzees have a dark side and they're capable of violence, brutality, and even a kind of primitive war when the males of one community will patrol the boundaries of their territory. And if they see a neighbor from a neighboring social group, they may give chase, and if they catch that unfortunate victim, male or female, subject him or her to a brutal attack, and almost inevitably that victim will die because the wounds received are so serious. But just as they have a dark side, like us too, they have a loving, compassionate, and altruistic side as well. If a mother dies, an older brother or sister will adopt an infant, if the infant is under three years, it will die because it's still dependent on milk. But if it's three or more, then being adopted by an older brother or sister can save its life. If there is no older brother or sister, then a totally unrelated individual may take on that role and save the infant's life. That's why we can talk about true altruism. It's only recently that we've been sure who the fathers of the different infants are. 
And we can now do that through modern technology, through collecting fecal samples, sending them off to a lab, the DNA is analyzed, and once you've collected samples from every single individual in the community, finally we know who the fathers are. And we found out there is some incest, not very much, but it, there is. So, as I say, chimps have their dark side, but they also have a loving and altruistic side. That's what we've learned looking back over the years. And Gombe research, by the way, is still going on and we're in our 56th year now. It's the longest unbroken study of any group of wild animals in the world. Well, when I'd been in the field about one and a half years, I didn't know nearly this much, but I was beginning to understand chimp behavior. And I got a letter from Louis Leakey telling me that I had to get a degree. He said, Jane, I won't always be around to get money for you. You're going to have to get your own and you need a degree. And I've got a place for you in Cambridge University. We don't have time for you to mess about with a BA. You're going to do a PhD in ethology. I remember I'd never been to college. I had not the remotest idea what ethology was. There was no Googling back then. We communicated with written letters or telegrams, if you could afford the telegram. Anyhow, I got to Cambridge nervous. You can imagine I was nervous. I felt that a lot of the students resented me. Who does she think she is marching in here just because she studied chimpanzees? She thinks she doesn't have to do all the hard work we've had to do. Uh, but worst of all, these professors of whom I was really quite nervous, several of them told me in no uncertain terms that my entire study had been done wrong. I'd given the chimpanzees names. Didn't I realize that to do science, they should have numbers. I couldn't talk about them having personalities. I couldn't talk about them having minds capable of thought. I certainly couldn't talk about them having emotions like happiness, sadness, fear, despair. Culture, I couldn't talk about these things because they were unique to us. And it was actually taught by science back then, I'm talking about 1962, that the difference between humans and other animals was one of kind. We now know it's one of degree. We now know that we're part of and not separated from the rest of the animal kingdom. We know through DNA analysis that we are the fifth grade ape biologically. But back then, these things couldn't be proved and therefore they didn't exist. But fortunately, I'd had a wonderful teacher when I was a child. And despite all their erudite learning, I knew because of that teacher that these professors were wrong. That teacher was my dog. You cannot share your life in a meaningful way with a dog, a cat, a horse, a, an antelope, an elephant. I don't care what it is and not know that, of course, animals have personalities, minds, and emotions. And so I had a wonderful supervisor, Professor Robert Hind, who sadly died two months ago. But he's another person that I really need to acknowledge because he taught me how to write about these things in such a way that I wouldn't be completely torn apart by my scientific colleagues. Initially, he was my sternest critic, but then he came to Gombe. 
And he said, Jane, I learned more in two weeks about animal behavior than in all my previous life. So Robert Hind was a wonderful supervisor for me. I got my PhD. I went back to Gombe. I built up a research station. I had time to be out in the forest, learning, learning, learning about and from the chimpanzees. I had time for analyzing the data, which I loved, for writing, writing scientific uh, texts and also writing popular books. I had a baby. My life was, it was the most idyllic time of my whole life. So why did I leave? I left because in 1986, there was a big conference when for the first time, the different people studying chimps in, I think there were eight different study sites across Africa at that time. And we came together for four days and it was mostly about discussing with each other the different chimpanzee behaviors. But we also had one session on conservation and that was a complete shock because everywhere there were pictures and film and talks about deforestation, about the beginning of the bushmeat trade, that's the commercial hunting of wild animals for food, about the chimpanzees who were being caught in wire snares set by hunters for antelopes, pigs and so forth. Mothers being shot so that infants could be stolen and sent on the live animal trade as pets for circuses or for medical research. And then we had a session of secretly, of, well, conditions in different captive situations. And one session showed secretly filmed video from an, a chimpanzee research lab. And I couldn't sleep for nights after that, seeing our closest living relatives in five foot by five foot cages with maybe if they're lucky a motor tire to sit on alone, these intensely, intensely social beings by themselves. And there, because by that time it was known how like us biologically they are, that we differ in the structure of DNA by only just over 1% that the main difference here is the expression of the genes, which can be affected by environment. We knew by then, or not me, but the, the scientists in the labs knew the similarities in composition of blood, the structure of the immune system, the anatomy of the brain. So yes, how wonderful these chimpanzees will be as models for human disease. We can infect them with diseases which other animals less like us cannot be infected with. But the same scientists were not prepared to accept the equally striking similarity in emotion and in behavior and in psychology. So for me, I went to that conference as a scientist planning to carry on with my idyllic life in the forest, but I left as an activist. So since October 1986, I haven't really been more than three weeks consecutively in any one place. I've been on the road about 300 days a year. And when I first, you know, I'm not, I, I didn't make a conscious decision. I just went as one person and left as another. And I don't know, honestly, what on earth I thought I could do. But I got a bit of money, I got some big, poster boards from National Geographic. I got support from, oddly enough, um, James Baker, the American Secretary of State. 
he loved what I was doing, and he, he sent telexes to all the American embassies in the countries where chimps live and said, please help Jane. It was a real help. So anyhow, I got to some of these countries, eight of them. We set up Wildlife Awareness Weeks. It was the first time in many of those countries that the different scientists studying different aspects or the different conservationists had known what each other did. They all came together. It was very, very revealing, and those things carried on. And of course, traveling around, I was learning more about the problems faced by the chimpanzees. But I was also learning about the problems faced by so many of the African people, people living in and around chimpanzee habitat, who were living in crippling poverty, who were hungry, who didn't have good educational health facilities. And there was ethnic violence. And it came to a head when I flew over the tiny Gombe National Park. It's only about 30 square miles, very, very small. And when I began in 1960, it was part of what we called the equatorial forest belt that curved around from the western part of East Africa and then through uh, Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, and to the west coast of Africa. And when I flew over in, in 1989 and looked down in a small, from a small plane, there was Gombe, 30 square miles, a little oasis of forest, and it was surrounded by completely bare hills. There were more people living there than the land could support. They were too poor to buy food from elsewhere. They were struggling to survive. And that's when it hit me. Unless we improve the lives of these people and get them as our partners in conservation, then we have no hope of saving the chimpanzees. And that's what began the Jane Goodall Institute's, probably our most, well, one of our two most successful programs. We call it Take Care or Takari. It's a very holistic program to improve the lives, initially of the 12 villagers around Gombe National Park. Not marching in and telling them what we, a bunch of arrogant white people, would do for them, but finding a team of Tanzanians, local Tanzanians, to go in and listen and ask them, what do you think we could do to make your lives better? And that's where we started. And then we were in, able to introduce other projects like management of water, microcredit for women, which I think has been one of the most successful because the women take out a tiny loan for a project that must be environmentally sustainable, and they have to pay back. So when they've paid back, they're proud. They've done it, and it makes a very big difference. And realizing that all around the world, as family size, uh, as women, sorry, all around the world, as women's education increases, as women are empowered, so family size tends to drop. We've worked a lot on empowering women, providing as many scholarships as we can to keep girls in school, providing family planning information, which is always delivered by local people, and by the way, is very well received. And so today, if you fly over Gombe, you will not see it surrounded by completely bare hills. The trees have come back, 
the villagers have understood the benefit to them, the fact that when you cut down trees on steep hillsides, there's terrible soil erosion. We helped bring back fertility to overuse farmland without using chemicals. And that program, which began in those 12 villages, is now in 55 villages. We've moved way out. So in all the big area around Gombe, where there were bare hills, the program has restored the forest. Down in the south, where most of Tanzania's few chimpanzees live, they're not in a protected area. They're in village forest reserves. So there we use the same sort of program to protect the forests and the chimpanzees. And it's working. So we've now introduced it into six other African countries uh, in, uh, around chimpanzee habitat areas. Well, so <clears throat> this all costs money. I was, by that time, beginning to travel around the United States more and more frequently, partly to raise awareness, but partly to try and raise funds. This is when the Jane Goodall Institute began in, in the US. And then traveling in Europe and finally traveling to other countries, Asia and, and uh, of course, now the Middle East. And everywhere I was going, I was learning more about what we are doing to trash this planet. And I don't need to go into that with an audience like you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know about the pollution of air, land, and water. You know about the deforestation and how it's leading to erosion. You know about the shrinking supplies of fresh water around the world. You know about the pollution, which in China is so bad that you have to wear a mask part of the time or else you're going to get really sick from breathing these particles into your lungs. And I know because the last time I was there in Beijing, it, it was hazard level and even I had to wear a mask. So, of course, you also know about the reckless burning of fossil fuel. And of course, this is an area where a great deal of fossil fuel has originated. But as it's as human populations have grown and as more and more energy has been devoted to people living in cities, so the air pollution from fossil fuels has grown. And the, the use of agricultural chemicals that are washed down into the rivers and eventually into the sea, the fact that many areas of the ocean are becoming dead zones acidified, and the oceans and the forests are the great lungs of the world, and as the oceans become acidic, they can no longer absorb CO2. The forests are being cut down all around the world and burned. And so we've made a right mess of the world, and there's also all the conflict, the ethnic violence, and there's the poverty, and there's the unsustainable lifestyles of the rest of us. And, you know, we're on a planet with finite natural resources, and we are told, worryingly, that already we are using up more of the world's natural resources than the planet can replenish. And our population is still rising. I've talked a lot about the similarities of human and chimp behavior, but there are some major differences and if I'm asked to pick out the main one, it's the explosive development of the human intellect. 
Chimpanzees are way more intelligent than anybody used to think. They can do complex things on computers. They can learn 500 or more of the signs used by uh, deaf people in America, American Sign Language. They can even communicate in this way with each other as well as their teacher. And we know that other animals are amazingly intelligent too, like the whales and the dolphins and the elephants. For a long time, science refused to admit that birds could be intelligent, even though owners of parrots would insist that their parrots knew many of the meanings of the words that they used. Not possible, because the parrot brain is structured differently from the, the bird brain, from the mammalian brain. And then suddenly, two scientists working in Oxford University in England, working with crows, and they gave these two Caledonian crows a simple task. It was a glass tube and a piece of wire with a, a sort of spoon-like hook on the end. And very quickly, both birds could push the wire down and scoop out the nut. But then one day, accidentally, it wasn't planned, the hook broke off. And so there was a lot of frustrated stabbing. And then one of the birds, I don't know how long it took, using beak and foot, bent a hook. It got out the nut. Well, said the skeptics, skeptical scientists, that was just a chance experience. Maybe it was, although it seems unlikely, but even if it was, the bird took immediate advantage, like Mike and his empty cans, and the next day straight away bent a hook, and the next day straight away bent a hook. So say the skeptics, well, it was only one of the two birds. That must have been a peculiar and aberrant bird. So why was only one doing it? Because that one was the female, and every time she brought out the peanut, the male took it. And so the motto is, if you have a wife, why bother to make a tool? <laughs> At any rate, so there's now a flurry of interest in the intelligence of all kinds of different birds. And one of the most recent interests is in the intelligent behavior of the octopus. And if you haven't seen this, Google octopus and clamshell, and you will be amazed to see how they can take clamshells or two empty halves of a coconut shell, take it out into an area where there's no rocks, where they're endangered because they're soft-bodied, and ooze themselves into one half and then reach out and clamp the other on top so they've made a house. Watch it. It's amazing. There's a lot of examples now. And the latest thing I read about three weeks ago was some scientists who taught a bumblebee how to pull a thread. And this would, would draw up a little blob of nectar so that the bee could reach it. Well, that's pretty amazing that you can teach a bumblebee to do that. But what was really even more amazing, they found that other bumblebees who hadn't been taught, who'd had absolutely no experience, if they'd watched the, the clever bumblebees doing this, they could do it too, straight away. Now that's, it, it's sad that we're so amazed by these things because I think some of the indigenous people have known it all along. But science likes to prove everything and science likes to be objective. And so these things have been denied by science. And now finally, science is beginning to open its mind and admit that yes, of course, animals have personalities and intellect and intelligence. And I truly believe it was because of that early work with the chimpanzees, because they're biologically so like us, 
but it started to open the door. And for young people wanting to study animal behavior now, this is a magical time because you can study things that I couldn't have studied um, because they didn't exist. I couldn't have studied animal intellect. They didn't have intellects, I was told. Now you can. So with this intellect of ours that is so far advanced, even from all these things I've been talking about, I mean, I know Abu Dhabi paid for the solar plane that managed to go all around the world without a single drop of fossil fuel. We sent a rocket up to Mars. Of course, we did use fossil fuel, but we sent a rocket up and a little robot to crawl around to take photographs on the surface of the red planet. So our intellect has developed in the most extraordinary way, maybe because we developed this power of talking with words, written or spoken, so that we can discuss things. We can bring people from different fields to try to solve problems. We can teach children about things that aren't present. But at any rate, whatever the reason, our intellect has developed in this extraordinary way. So isn't it bizarre that the most intellectual creature to ever walk the planet is destroying its only home? There seemed to have been a disconnect between this clever brain and the human heart, love and compassion. And I truly believe that we can only achieve our true human potential if head and heart work in harmony. When I was traveling around the world, I was continually meeting young people, students, high school students, university students, who didn't seem to have much hope, who were angry, who were depressed, or mostly just apathetic. And they all said to me much the same thing. We feel like this because you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. We have compromised the future of our young people. And we have one young person right in the frontier. We're, we've, we've definitely compromised the future of our children. And is it true there's nothing that can be done about it? I think we have a window of time if we get together. And it was because of this and because if our young people lose hope, there is no hope, that I started the Roots and Shoots program. And it began with 12 high school students in Tanzania. It's now in about 100 countries. We've got about 150,000 active groups, and it's come here to Abu Dhabi to spread out into the rest of the Emirates, and that's very largely thanks to Fred Lunay, who's down here in the front, and also Tara Golshan, who's been coming here and helping to develop the Roots and Shoots program here in Abu Dhabi. And also funding is helping us to develop funding from, from Abu Dhabi and from the Environment Agency is helping us to develop roots and shoots in my own country, which is the UK. So it's a program which is youth-driven. It's about choosing projects to make the world a better place for people, for animals, for the environment we all share. It's a program where young people begin to understand because now they're communicating with each other around the world that although we may have different colored skin, 
we may have different clothes, different culture, different religion. If we're cut, the blood is the same. If we cry, the tears are the same. If we laugh, we have the same wonderful feeling. Under the skin, we are all one human family. And that's very much what Roots and Shoots is all about. So this is why it's spreading and we have young people of all ages. We have a very short little video to give you just some idea of this program. I don't know if you can put the lights out because it'll be very hard to see if all the lights are on, but I don't know if they go out. It's about four minutes. Dark green is where there's most roots and Some people think it's far away. Some know it's with them every day. You are the reason we found out. So thank you, Star. So that was taken some time ago. We don't have Abu Dhabi yet. Uh, we'll have to renew it. But it gives you a little feeling. Roots and Shoots groups choose their projects. They have fun. And they are beginning increasingly to come together. Mostly it has to be electronically. But Skyping really does help people to, to actually see each other. And whenever possible, we bring young people from around the world face to face. We have a wonderful project now in Windsor Castle. And every year they pay for 30 young people from around the world, 18, between 18 and 24 years old, to come and talk about the issues that matter to them. And everything is paid for except the airfare. And this is pretty amazing. So it was going to be uh, twice a year for three years. Then we realized we can't do two a year. It's much too difficult. 
um, Tara's been very much involved in putting these things together. So then it was decided once a year for six years, but now the Windsor Castle people are so impressed by this program and these young people, these leaders of the future, that they want it to go on forever. So I think Roots and Shoots is one of the two really important programs of the Jane Goodall Institute. The first is improving the lives of local people so that they become our partners in conservation. And the second is this Roots and Shoots program. We're creating a family of young people with shared values around the world. And I'm really excited that we've now got 70 schools in Abu Dhabi and it, the plan is to spread it out through the Emirates. We have some in other Emirates as well, but it's only here that it's formalized thanks to the Environment Agency. And Fred, you started it. Anyhow, um, so people are always saying to me, Jane, do you really have hope for the future? You've seen so much destruction of forests. You've seen amazing cruelty to animals. You've been involved in ethnic violence in Africa. You know what's happening. Everybody writes to tell you, you don't really have hope for the future, do you? Well, I've got, I don't know how big the window is. I'm absolutely sure there's a window. And my five reasons for hope, first is this Roots and Toots program and other similar programs. Young people, once they understand the problems and are empowered to take action, it's amazing, not what they can do, what they're doing. They are changing the world. Some of the projects that I saw when we had the award ceremony here the day before yesterday, incredible projects, really using the human brain and understanding how nature works and what we need to do. So that is my probably my greatest reason for hope. But then there's this brain, and we've used it for bad things. And we're still using it to do bad things. But think what we can do and are doing to provide new innovative technology that will enable us to <clears throat> live in greater harmony with nature and how we can use our brain to live our own individual lives in a different way. If we will just think about the consequences of the small choices we make, what we buy, what we eat, what we wear, where it came from, did it harm the environment, animals and so forth. And millions and millions of small ethical choices are going to make the right kind of world. And of course, some people can have much greater influence, the heads of big companies, uh, government officials and so on. Because we're all a little bit worried about the result of the last American election. But we shall just have to wait and see what's going to happen. It's very close now, this, un, this impossible thing that happened. So the impossible can happen. Brexit <laughs> happened too. <laughs> but anyhow, the human brain, we are capable of getting ourselves out of an awful lot of messes. And we are, we do have greater awareness now. We do understand that there is a time pressure. And my next reason for hope, the, the uh, resilience of nature. I've already described how the trees came back around Gombe. Animals on the brink of extinction can be given another chance. And that's been shown again right here in Abu Dhabi with the Arabian oryx that were on the verge of extinction that are now back in the wild. 
I was hoping to see them this time, but it's going to have to be next time. And the saber-horned, saber scimitar-horned uh, oryx, which was extinct in Chad, has been captive bred here. And is it three groups that have gone back? Three. And you're going with the fourth group. And they've had a baby, so and the baby's doing well. And they're now out in the wild where they came from in Chad. So this is happening in other parts of the world. It's a great reason for hope. In fact, I wrote an entire book called Hope for Animals and Their World. And every single chapter is about an animal species that was on the verge of extinction and has been given a second chance. The next reason for hope is social media. And again, yes, there's a lot of misinformation out there. But for the first time in human history, we can bring millions of people together around the globe who care about a single issue. We can make voices heard where they would not have been heard before. And finally, there's the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle seemingly impossible tasks and won't give up, the people who succeed where they've been told they will fail. And this is why I carried Mr. H around with me. Mr. H was given to me 25 years ago by a man called Gary Horn. That's why he's Mr. H. And Gary Horn lost his eyesight when he was in the US Marines, age 21. And when he was learning to live in this new dark world, he decided for some odd reason that he wanted to become a magician. Everybody said to him, Gary, you can't be a good magician if you can't see. And he said, well, I can try. And he does shows for children, and they don't know he's blind. And at the end, he'll tell them and say, you know, if things go wrong in your life and we never know, don't give up. There's always a way forward. And he does scuba diving and cross-country skiing. He even does skydiving. I mean, I think people jumping out of planes are crazy anyway. But to jump into a complete black void is the height of insanity. <laughs> At any rate, he thought he was giving me a stuffed chimpanzee for my birthday. And I told him, Gary, I know you can't see it's the wrong color, but what about this? And he said, oh, well, never mind. Take him where you go, and you know I'm with you in spirit. So Mr. H has now been with me to 63 countries. He's probably been touched by about four, at least 4 million people, because I say when you touch him, the inspiration rubs off. And so those are my five reasons for hope. And I think that as I travel around the world, I meet more and more people who are just amazing individuals doing incredible projects. So I think I'm lucky in that I have met so many of them. I know so much about their projects. And this is the big way to counteract all the doom and gloom. Yes, there are terrible things, but think what's happening that shows signs of change. China banning the ivory trade by the end of this year. Nobody thought they would do that. And the Chinese airlines are now saying they won't carry certain wildlife products. Uh, Abu Dhabi banning the keeping of exotic animals as pets, something that I know many people here have been working on. It's happened.
And these kind of things, I could give a long list, these kind of things are happening all around the world. People are waking up. People are beginning to realize that we have to act now, that we don't have too much time. Forests are being restored. The mangrove forests here, which are absorbing carbon dioxide, are, are being continually grown and nurtured and looked after. So it's not too late if we all get together and if we all do our bit and realize that each one of us makes a difference every single day. So I have left time for about 10 minutes of questions. And then I have one last video to show you before we finally uh, end the evening. So I, all right, I'm being asked the first question. Um, and yes, I know it. I, I hoped somebody would ask the question. <laughs> One of the causes of climate change, and a very major cause of climate change, is industrial agriculture, particularly animal farming. And as more and more people around the world eat more and more meat, China, for example, it's a status symbol now to serve meat. And as more and more people eat more and more meat, so billions of animals are being raised in these intensive farms. Maybe you don't care about animal cruelty. Uh, if you haven't been to an abattoir, I would advise you not to go. I, I couldn't sleep after I'd seen that. Anyhow, um, these billions of animals have to be fed. Forests are being cut down. Environments are being destroyed to grow the grain to feed them. And usually this is involving the use of chemicals or even genetically modified crops. And lots of fossil fuel is used to get the grain to the animals, the animals to the slaughterhouse, the meat to the table. Added to that, these creatures, and I take cow around when I'm talking to children, because I can just demonstrate food comes in here and gas comes out the other end, and that makes them all giggle. Um, but anyway, huge amounts of methane gas is produced as a result of intensive animal farming around the world. And finally, and this is if you don't care about the environment and you don't care about cruelty to animals, you probably care about your own health. These animals to be kept alive are given antibiotics daily, routinely, just to keep them alive. And this use of antibiotics in this way has caused more and more and more bacteria to build up resistance. And I just happened to be in the UK when the Surgeon General made a statement saying the era of the antibiotic is almost over. And he attributed a very large, to a very large extent, the building up of resistance in bacteria to animal farming. Just last week when I left the UK, there was an article saying, the hospitals don't have enough rooms anymore where they can isolate people with superbugs, bugs that they cannot cure with normal antibiotics. So that's why I carry cow around with me. Thank you, Tara. So any more questions? There's one right at the back. Yes, you. Oh, do we have a mic? Yes. 
favourite chimpanzee and why are they your favourite? I didn't hear. Oh, favourite chimpanzee. Well, my favourite chimpanzee of all time was David Greybeard because he was the first one to lose his fear of me. Uh, he was the first one to show me tool using. He introduced me to his friends in the forest. He was gentle. Um, and he was a chimpanzee that one day, I was, right at the beginning in the early days, I was following him in the forest. And I thought I'd lost him. But when I got through this tangle of vegetation, he was sitting, looking back. It looked as if he was waiting for me. I don't know. And so I sat near him, and between us was a palm nut. And chimpanzees love eating palm nuts. So I handed it towards him on my hand, and he turned his face away. He didn't want it. I put my hand closer, and he took the nut, looked directly into my eyes, dropped it, but then very gently squeezed my fingers, which is how chimpanzees reassure each other. And so in that one moment, we had perfect communication, the kind of communication that we've probably had all through our human history. He knew what I meant, and I knew what he meant. And it was a very, very special moment. Yes. So, um, Please do. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Oh, it's really a lovely. Uh, you did this. Yes. That's fantastic. Thank you. inspired you to love animals so much? Why do I love animals so much? Yeah, what inspired you? Well, I was born loving animals. Do you love animals? Yeah, well, then you know why I love them, because you love them the same. <laughs> There's so many amazing stories out on YouTube now where you see animals helping animals, animals helping their owners. Some of them are quite beautiful. I'm going to gather them up talk to the people who have these animal stories and put them together in a book. It's not only dogs. There's a lovely story of a horse who went blind and a goat took over as a guide dog for the horse. And the horse goes for walks with the goat. No people there. And that's been going on for 10 years. And there was another case where um, a Labrador went blind and wouldn't lose, use wouldn't leave his basket. His owners had to carry him out uh, into the garden to pee and things. And then a stray cat came in through the window, immediately went and curled up with the Labrador, and now the Labrador goes out following the cat. So these stories are so wonderful, and I want to put them together and make them genuine by actually talking to the people and getting first-hand information and photographs. Why are chimpanzees so smart? Why do chimpanzees? Why are chimpanzees so smart? Well, because their brain 
is almost, it looks almost the same as ours. Ours is a bit bigger, but the way the brain is structured, um, gorillas are very smart, orangutans are very smart, elephants are very smart, and chimpanzees do things like us because their brain is, is structured in much the same way. Yes, yeah. What is one thing that I can do every day to make a positive impact on the earth? One thing you can do every day. Well, as I don't know your kind of life, but one thing you can do is eat less meat or no meat. That will be a big help. Another thing you can do is turn lights off. You can uh, try not to waste water. You can pick up litter. There's all kinds of things you can do. And that's the kind of thing to talk to your friends about. Start a Roots and Shoots group and decide what you can all do to make the world a better place. You can be kind to animals. You can be nice to people. You can help your mother. <laughs> and your father. Yes, back there. There's one here and one there. And one here. First of all, I'd just like to say you're just an unbelievable inspiration. Uh, it's incredible sitting here and listening to you speak. Uh, I just wanted to ask, do you go back to Tanzania at all now? Do you, is there any real reason for that? And if you do, do you find it you know, emotional or does it pull on the heartstrings, sort of where it all began for you? Well, I'll be off to Tanzania at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. Um, <laughs> I go back twice a year. I have family there. My son is there and two of his, two of his children. And I also go to visit Gombe. I need to talk to the staff there, the field staff who are carrying on with the research and visit some of our Takari programs. But it's changed so much. It's not emotional like it used to be. I can always try and get out in the forest, but there's there's too much tourism there now, which is not in our hands. It's Tanzania National Park. It's their park. Um, but the park is so small. So I can't find chimpanzees without a tourist, mostly. I can't climb high in the hills anymore. You know, I'm nearly 83, and so those days are over. But I still go back, yes. Here, here, here. <laughs> um, I went to the chimpanzee sanctuary in Kenya. Sweetwaters. Yeah. Yeah, that's those chimpanzees. <laughs> those those chimpanzees. Uh, we had a sanctuary for them in Burundi, and then the genocide in Burundi started. And several of our caretakers were actually killed. And so the French army kindly moved those 22 chimps to Kenya. And that was the start of the sanctuary there. It was a company called Lonro that built the sanctuary. And I visited there just a short time ago. And it's a, it's a pretty good sanctuary in Sweetwater's uh, Reserve. I was just curious, in uh, 2012, I think there was a YouTube video. Sorry, I'm not sorry. Where are you? Who's sorry. still there? <laughs> no, You're right no, against no. that light, so I can't see you, but Sit never back. mind. Now I know where you are. 
Um, in 2012, there was a video that circulated YouTube and, and made around. It was, you were with a team of people releasing a chimp. That's, jacket. wait, that's what I'm going to show you. <laughs> that's the last video. So you will see. My question was just, how long did you know that chimp before? I will tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> So I was wondering how you chose the names like David and Goliath. You wondering what? How you chose the names for the chimpanzees? Oh, I don't know. They just came. David and Goliath. It was you know the Bible's David and Goliath, and they were always together. So they just got called David and Goliath. <laughs> but now we have like the the members of a family all have names beginning with the same letter, so that it's very easy to tell now who are members of the same family. There were some questions over this side. Hi. Yeah, uh, there. So this is actually not a question for me, but for my friend Anna, who's studying animal science. And I know she's struggling a lot with kind of keeping up with her work and doing what she wants, um, even though school work is hard. So what kind of advice would you give to my friend Anna and people in her shoes who really want to work with animals, but sometimes seem down with the amount of work or you know, just everything that surrounds it and makes it seem impossible? Well, if you, you know, if you really want to do something, you just have to work hard and not give up. I mean, the only advice I can give is if you really want to do something, you somehow will cope with the work. If you can't cope with the university work, you can still work with animals without a degree. Thank you. In terms of uh, policy change, what if you had, sorry, right here. If you had uh, the ability to make a mandatory law or a mandatory rule, uh, if you could have a magic wand, what would be the biggest policy change that you would make? Well, I think what we need is, and it's not really policy, policy it's a, a changed attitude. You know, we in, in our individual cells, we have to change our attitude to the way we live. And there are some intractable questions which I, I don't know how to answer. Like if, you know, when I'm talking to people about how you live your life, uh, what you buy, what you eat, what you wear, and I always say to them, well, you know, when you're shopping, do you actually need this thing? Because we all have far more than we need. And yet if a country goes into an economic crisis, the first thing you're told to do by the government is to buy more because that will build up the economy. So here is a, 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 I can't answer a question like that. And I don't know what the policy should be. So it, it's very difficult to choose one. I don't know that I, I want to wave a magic wand like that because the one thing I have learned is how everything is interrelated. And if I had to choose out of the three big biggest problems facing us, one is abject poverty. Because if you're really poor, you cut down the last trees to grow food or make charcoal. If you're in a rural, uh, if you're in an urban area, you buy the cheapest junk food. You can't afford to ask where it was made and how it impacted the environment. You have to buy the cheapest. Then there's the unsustainable lifestyles of the rest of us. We all have more than we, more than we need. And finally, there's human population growth. And if you put those three together, you get 
that leads to many of the problems we face today. But there isn't a single piece of legislation that's really going to, I think all these, these changes that are happening in legislation, like there was one announcement just today, this morning, that in every French abattoir, it's now compulsory to put cameras in so that they can see the cruelty. And so these things are happening all the time. Airlines banning the carrying of ivory or other kinds of animal products and banning ivory trade and banning exotic pets. They're all these different legislations that are coming together to make a difference. What's the... Um What's the most uh, chimp-like behavior you've ever observed in humans? <laughs> well, gosh, there's so much. I mean, chimpanzees kiss, embrace, hold hands, pat one another. Uh, males kind of swagger at each other and shake their fist. Um, there's a lot of competition over females. Uh, Warlike behavior is very much the same. It's just, there's just so much that's the same. Two more questions. Well, you pick them. Oh, all right, yes. I love doing roots and shoots. So uh, when you left the camp for a few weeks or months, do the chips remember you, chimps, remember you? Yes, that's a good question. I was really surprised. I could go away for quite a long time and they immediately knew me. And in the very early days, they would accept me, but if somebody came to visit, they would run away, and that made me very happy. <laughs> so yes, they've got very good memories, and they do, did remember me, so good question. Was your father supportive with your work? Was your father my father, I didn't really know him because he went away when war broke out. And by the end of war, my parents were divorced. So I never really knew. But what he did for me, um, I inherited his really strong constitution, which enables me to travel the world the way I do at 82. So I'm very grateful for that. One more. Hi, my name's Jamie, and I'm in the generation that's hurt turn off the lights, preserve water. We've been taught this, but it's very hard for me to believe that this will really make an effective change when we have things like the continental ice crack that is about the size of Delaware, a state in the United States. And I just wanna know how you keep hope for yourself that it will make a difference, even when you can still see these things happening that are detrimental to our environment. Well, there's no question but that we will continue to destroy the environment. That's inevitable. It's happening all the time, just as you say. And climate change, despite Donald Trump, is actually for real, and we have influenced it. And we can, we can do stuff to slow it down. So all I can say to you is to repeat what I said. Try and look for all the amazing things that are happening. Look at the amazing projects, and yes, there all the time we are being deluged with things that have gone wrong, with legislation that's overturned, uh, you know, grizzly bears being delisted or wolves being delisted. But at the same time, there are more and more and more people fighting to put it right. 
and we have to pull out and, and uh, applaud everything that's going right. If the press, the media, would spend as much time talking about the good things as they do about the bad things, then it would be a different kind of world. So the, the media has a lot of responsibility. So I love talking to journalists, some of whom are very brave and who are being kind of undermined by the social media. I mean, fancy having the president of the United States who governs his country through Twitter. I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's not. So we're now going to um, see this last short video, and it's answering your question. Um, in Congo, Brazzaville, and you'll see this on the, on the film, but we have the largest sanctuary for orphan chimpanzees in Africa. There's 166 of them now, many are fully grown. And this video, which many of you may have seen, but it's always worth showing again. It's a chimpanzee who at one point nearly died. The person running the sanctuary is an incredible veterinarian, Rebecca, who saved Wunder's life by giving her the first chimp-to-chimp -chimp blood transfusion in Africa. And as you will hear in the video, this was the first time I met Wunder. And what happened when we released her onto the islands that we've acquired was perhaps one of the most amazing things that's ever happened. So after we've seen this video, I'll just give you a short update on Wunda, and that will end our evening rather beautifully. This is a really exciting moment for me. The Jane Goodall Institute's Chimpunga Chimpanzee Rehabilitation Center in the Republic of Congo has for years been caring for infants whose mothers were killed, mostly for the illegal bushmeat trade. Many of them are now fully grown. Recently, we acquired three large forested islands on the beautiful Quilu River, where we can release many of the chimpanzees from our overcrowded center. In here is Wunda, and she nearly died, but thanks to Rebecca, she came back from the dead, and here she is about to come out into this paradise. She's the 15th chimpanzee to get her freedom here. And we hope ultimately to have about 60 on the island. Today is the first time I've met Wunder. I talked to her on the boat, trying to reassure her. She must have wondered what was happening. None of us could predict exactly what she would do once the cage door opened. It was a very, very touching moment. One of the most amazing things that's ever happened to me. The warmth of her embrace is something I shall never forget. For Wunda and all the other chimpanzees we're working to bring here, Chinzula Island will provide a wonderful forest home where they will be cared for 
and safe. So, Wunda is now the dominant female in a group of 30, and that includes some adult males. I'm sure eventually they will dominate her, but right now she's the alpha female. And our females are all on birth control because, like I say, we have 166. It's very expensive looking after them. We have no more room. These three islands are big, but they are not indefinitely expandable. We hope to release some of the chimpanzees into the real wild, but it's difficult to find a place that's safe for them or where they wouldn't interfere with wild chimps. So the females are on birth control. And over all these years, one female's birth control didn't work, and that was Wunda. And so at the middle of last year, Wunda had a baby successfully, all by herself, first baby, mother and child doing really well. And so the child is now, I think it's about nine months old, and we've called that baby Hope. So that seems to me a nice way to end the evening. And I want to thank everybody who's helped to make it possible, and all of you for being here, and those of you who are listening. And I just want to perhaps end up by saying, it's not only human beings who have this indomitable spirit. Wunda's mother was shot. She was rescued from a market. She was sick. She got nurtured. She fell sick again. Rebecca brought her back from the brink of death. And now here she is, a dominant female on an island with a baby. That's the indomitable spirit. But I wanted to end up by saying that there isn't a single person here or listening who doesn't have that same indomitable spirit. We just have to acknowledge that spirit and let it free and work as hard as we can to make this world better every single day. Believing that the cumulative effect of millions and then billions of people around the world making the right ethical choices, even small ones, are going to move us towards the kind of world that will enable a future for our great-grandchildren. So finally, thank you all again for coming. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.